East of Eden, the John Steinbeck novel, gives a telling look of desperate people who are in the Dust Bowl era who journey away from places that are lifeless to a place that offers wealth and flourishing. That place was California and their promise of work and gold. The families leave the desolation to find promise. They leave pessimism in hopes of finding determinism. The story in all its wisdom bridges the gap between worldly wisdom and the true anthropology. People who will continue to remain foolish and greedy and live in a chaotic world uh, in order to get gain. I loved reading this book and it was very timely in the fall of 2020 because I had moved back uh, to Texas after spending 18 years away from the promised land. The signs, don't California my Texas, were everywhere. Uh, and there was even the sentiment and even some signs that said, leave your politics where you came from. Meanwhile, I began seeing in my community some really drastic changes. Many of my neighbors had hedged their bets on this promised land. They saw a lot of value in their little piece of dirt. And in moving to San Antonio, and they recognized the hope that could be here. And now even those who love to loathe Texas were beginning to see its value. Even the New York Times uh, about a year ago had talked about North and Central Texas being the most desirous places to live through our global, global climate change. And so we have even more pride as Texans <laughs> over other states. And Steinbeck in his novel is really helping us understand that no place is more important nor can it change the people in its presence. Neither is God desire, desire us to see only one place as great or even greater than everywhere else. In the Tower of Babel, we see the story where God's people are aiming for one goal, but we also find something woefully absent, and it's God on their lips. He, they, they attempt to make God into what they desire. They ultimately want control, but God in his graciousness thwarts their plans. And so God in his kindness is gracious to his people by scattering them, which seems odd. But we'll see today that as this, as this carries on, um, that this might even encourage your own story, that God is not finished with you. That when challenges arise and when impossibilities are realized, that God is not finished. So three points this morning that I want us to discuss. First is humanity's folly. Second is God's presence. And the third is humanity's scattering. So first, humanity's folly. Verses 1 through 4 give us a picture of a world after Noah and his family had docked from the flood. In this time, as Kent Hughes says, the world would have been full of cousins. They would have all known each other. And Noah's family had, had been collected in this large ark. They had been released. And it's as though they're seeing all these billboards and flyers and signs that point them to this valley of Shinar, this one place where they can settle. And we know uh, in later times that this is the location of Babylon. Humanity has just been through this global flood, and it's as though they're seeking this safety and this shelter in this one place. <clears throat> but this is problematic, because if you know the Bible up until this point, God reissues what's called the creation mandate. 
And in Genesis 9-1, he says it this way, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The careful, uh, the careful reader of Scripture will remember that this is part of the full creation mandate from Genesis chapter 1 that also says, And subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And I bring this to your attention because Noah's descendants who gathered in this valley of Shinar were applying part of the creation mandate in their acts of gathering in this one location. They're being fruitful. We know that if you read back to Genesis chapter 10 and you look at the table of nations, there are people that are, that are multiplying. The world is getting larger. We know there are attempts to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Verses 3 and 4 show us a desire to make a structure, uh, a city, but also a tower of, for naturally occurring materials for the betterment of the society. So in ways they're partly living up to this creation mandate. The problem, and ultimately our folly, is when we try to do this without God. Or when we try to do anything without God, we ultimately see our lives as built on a house of cards. We're striving for something we believe in is ultimately good or great, but without the instruction of our good creator who loves us. God is not mentioned once in the verses one through four. And there's a collective voice that these people proclaim. In fact, their name is what they desire to see uh, be great. One biblical scholar says it this way. He says, humanity squandered an amazing opportunity to worship God in one voice and instead attempted the largest construction project. And so most of us aren't longing for some great construction project to make our names great, but we do long for something else particularly in this day, happiness and safety. Aldous Huxley's 1920s work, Brave New World, which is making a comeback in a lot of bookstores, explores the utopian place where everyone is happy, everyone is content, and everyone makes themselves at peace. There's no war, there's no distress, there's no pity. All freedoms are experienced without guilt or shame, and any hint a feeling shame or guilt or sadness is cured when you just pop a soma pill. Pop that soma pill and you will be just fine. And even if you haven't heard of Brave New World, you might feel like this book was written today. Uh, that is the ideal in our world in 2022, to feel good and happy and safe. Advertisers in the past decade have moved their attention away from success toward happiness. The idea of being happy is the most prominent thing in our world today. Enter Taylor Swift, and in her 2020 documentary, uh, Miss Americana, the pop singer Taylor Swift details how she managed through nearly 13 years of fame, from being a teenager to almost turning 30. And her goal was to make people happy. But that happiness, but, and that happiness is ultimately what would make her happy. She called it the morality of happiness. But life happened. In particular, a feud with Kanye West created such pain in Taylor that she disappeared for an entire year, invisible to the crowds, fans, paparazzi, anybody. And no one, it seemed like, had a clue what was going on in her life. And two years before this documentary uh, was produced, she appears to make a, an appearance, realizing 
that making others happy isn't really the goal. She just needs to be happy. Did you hear the same things that the people in Babel were searching for? There's a longing that we can do something, anything, to make ourselves better, or at least content. We can help fix what is wrong with society. If only good people make up this community, there is less, there is less violence and awful things and better that can happen in the world. This is the spirit of Babel. The spirit of Babel is present in Austin and San Antonio and everywhere. And everybody falls into this trap. We long for heaven on earth, yet we are on earth. And we live in broken and sinful bodies, in a sinful and a warped world. The morality of happiness is such a longing for us. If we can construct some system that helps us feel better, why not do it? But this is the folly of our own trying to do something apart from God. And this leads us, those of us who are Christians, to, to do something. We must confess our sin, which we, had, which we did this morning. We need to turn from the sin that is in us and turn towards the God who loves us, who longs to be nearer to us. We must find comfort in the words of our confession this morning that when we see our sin, that we are truly sorry and that we humbly repent because we believe that God sent his son to take that sin away from us. We must be willing to come to this loving father because he has our best in mind. Now, listen, confessing sin is not easy and it is definitely not simple. It often requires for us to sit with a father, even if we don't have the answers. We sit longing for his answers of how we are sinning and in what ways we have sinned against others. We must also cling to the truth found in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is perfect. and Continue to seek our Lord through his word because we know that we are in the presence of a good and gracious God who longs to be with his people. Now the context here of, of uh, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel story, is set in an interesting historic timeline. See, Genesis chapter 10 recounts the table of nations, these people that came from, uh, Noah's, uh, from, from Noah, right? And it shows how they were all scattered around the world. Um, and then we also see Shem's descendants, who we'll get to. But roughly there is about 130 years between the time that the ark was docked until God dispersed his people. In other words, this was a large project. This is a city and a tower that, that were constructed in about 130 years. So it would be quite high at this point. It is posited uh, that, the, that the tower was like a ziggurat, if you're familiar with that, with, with tiered inclines so that anyone who wanted to could actually make their way up to the top. And so instead of walking up to God, which the people believe that they could, God actually brings himself to them. So the second point is that God's presence is here in this passage. Verses 5 through 7 uh, speak to this, and look with me at verse 5 in particular. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And I want you to notice the scale that is expressed here. The people in Babel believe that they had built something amazing, that they, were, that they had built something where they were pretty close to reaching God and reaching heaven. And yet God himself actually had to 
come down to, be, to look at, to see what the people had done. It reminds me of the times when my kids exclaimed to me, Daddy, Daddy, you wouldn't believe what I just did when they, as though they did some kind of engineering feats with their Lego making or with blocks. They created some kind of new way to think or new philosophy. But here God comes to them, and in this text, he comes to them in the, in the personal name of God, Yahweh, as the one who desires to covenant himself to us. Picking up in verse 7, it says this, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now this part feels a little bit confusing, the way uh, it, might, it might come to us, as though God is somehow threatened by the people in Babel and what they've done. But he's actually not threatened by them. He is pitied by them and by their folly. I love what R.C. Sproul says here, that God is thwarting man's plans in order that Satan's plans are not increased. God thwarts man's plans in order that Satan's plans aren't increased. God wants his people to know him, and by confusing their language, he can confuse the ways that they can easily communicate with one another and do this massive project, whether it be a building project or whether it be social projects, in order to think that they can control something. The work of this unisocietal, unicultural work cannot be done because God is present and he confuses it from happening. And friends, the fact that God is present here is such a comfort for us. We must see God's presence in this passage as a mercy to our hearts. For by the grace of God, the saying goes, I go astray. And we all do. But truly, for the presence of God, we are lost in all of our ways. We cling to, to, we, we cling to the things that we think that we can control. I often do that with my students and in desiring them to uh, do something. But I have to remember, and one of the things that, that we say over and over again in RUF is that God is at work, that it is God who brought the students to UTSA at this time for this purpose, for this reason. We know that God is at work when we see unbelieving students come to a Bible study simply out of curiosity, and many who come to faith. And my heart even struggles with it whenever I see my plans get thwarted or when they don't go through as, as I hoped. Uh, I have to remember that God is at work even in my best laid plans. And each of us is here today at Redeemer Presbyterian because God was gracious to bring us here. What good news is it to remember that God is at work, to will and to work, that he is the one that is doing this. The third thing is that humanity is scattered in this passage. We get to this end, the end of this passage, and verses 8 through 9 speak of, of, of God scattering humanity. As we finish this passage, it feels really strange. It feels really strange that the Lord has come down to confuse the language of the people, and as it says, disperse them over the face of the earth. It's really kind of a sad way to end Humanity, though, through the Lord's scattering, are living out creation's mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
God is filling the earth by way of scattering them all around the world. We get a picture of the scattering, and if we had the time, we could actually trace the way that every type of people in Genesis 10 is part of the Old Testament story. And then after the tower narrative, we see a hope as it's through Shem's descendants, through Abram, that one family will actually walk with God and will be near to him. Genesis 12 says this, the the Lord says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And don't forget the last part here which says this, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram, soon to be Abraham, is taken out of his father's household. He's taken away from his country, and he's blessed so that he might be a blessing, so that he might be a great nation, and that through him one day all of those scattered nations would come to know our Lord. Through God, though God takes Abram out of his family, he doesn't isolate him. He doesn't set him in some little bubble. He does so in order to show the work of God, and he actually wants the world to be a witness of what he can do through a nation. In fact, a very weak and and, um, at times sad nation. Today on Pentecost Sunday, it seems a little odd that we're talking about something like this. The Spirit of the Lord isn't mentioned, but this linguistic confusion is part, was part of God's plan to set in, in motion at Babel what would be reversed in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. When the people gathered on the day of Pentecost, there was a reversal of that linguistic confusion. On that day, the effects of Babel were reversed, and all the people spoke to one another in their own language and could be understood by one another. Just like we had done here this morning where these different languages were spoken. It's as though you spoke in Italian, but you heard it and understood it in English or vice versa. Luke, the author, wants us to understand that this, this is what the outsider would have looked at, some kind, of, some kind of strange occurrence. He even shows that in the story, we see the folly of man, Right? Acts chapter 2, verse 13, mocking, they said, those who didn't understand, they are filled with new wine. In other words, they're drunk. They don't know what they're doing. We also see the presence of the Lord, where the Lord actually comes down and His Spirit descends on the people. And then Peter addresses the men, giving them and unfolding the Scripture to them. If we had time, we could go through all of Acts chapter 2 to see how it's unfolded to them. And then the scattering of these people. They went back to their places where their language was spoken. The Lord did not have a desire to only use one language, but he used the different cultures and the different ways of speaking to present the good news about Jesus to their families, to their neighborhoods, and to their places. And that same wonderful work is given to us today. God has kindly chosen to be at work in the world in spite of his people. And this gives you and I so much hope. God scatters us to different places to speak the truth about him in where we live. 
Um, for many of us, we've even seen changes in our neighborhood that would, that would say that demographically is completely shifted from the time that we first lived there. God gives us an opportunity uh, to speak his truth in our places. He allows us to see in his, that he is at work in places that we might not even expect. And at times, he scatters us even to other parts of the world to continue this work. And so if you're coming to church today and you are struggling, I want to encourage you that God is with you and that he longs to be near to you. If you come searching today, his spirit longs to be in you and to give you hope and to give you faith. If you come in faith, be encouraged that God is with you and that he longs to continue this work that he began in you. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we pray that your word would go forth in power. We thank you for um, this message that you've given us through the Tower of Babel. Pray that you would um, be at work in our hearts, soften us. We thank you for your spirit and his work on our behalf. We pray that you would continue your work. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.